Let's open our Bibles to the book of James as we continue our journey uh, through the first chapter. We're going to look at verses 12 through 18 today in a message that I have entitled From Trials, which is what we talked about last week, uh, to Temptations. So from trials to temptations, let's take our heart to uh, the Lord. God, once again, we just say thank you for your, your, your great unrelenting faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, that you just continue to uh, just, uh, you know, illuminate your word, uh, edify the body, glorify yourself, Lord, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, Lord, strengthen your bride today, and we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. Guys, the word of God offers a ready reminder of the frailty or brevity of life. You know, the lifespan of man in the grand scope of things is as the grass of the field. And as the grass withers and the flower falls and its beautiful appearance fades, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. And, you know, so the question becomes, what is our pursuit? And it's not that it's wrong to have money as we kind of are highlighting a little of this section from last week, but the warning is to be wise. Don't make it your sole life goal to acquire wealth. Uh, Don't put your faith in finances as though riches will assure future security. That mindset is focused on the temporary rather than, you know, eternity. Listen, there's only two things in this life that will enter eternity. One is the word of God, right? Uh, Heaven and earth will pass away. My words will by no means never pass away, Jesus said. The other is the people on this planet. Now, of the people on this planet, only those of you who have come to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ will go to be with the Lord and enjoy the fullness of salvation. The rest will experience eternal separation from God and condemnation in their sin. Now, that should provoke us to set our sights on Jesus Christ and to Give out the message of the gospel rather than constantly seeking to simply acquire more money and and greater wealth and all. Now, if you're rich, that's okay. Just make sure you're using those resources in some measure to move forward ministry to advance the agenda of of God's kingdom upon the earth. And listen, here's the kind of the, um, uh, the reminder from our last week. Listen, if you have lots of money, I mean, praise God for that. But thank God for those trials that he allows to enter into the equation of your life that remind you to trust in him rather than uncertain riches. Now, if you're on the other side of that spectrum and you're poor, don't fret. You know, God has riches in store for you that are, as we say, out of this world, right? And, and that's the kind of context that we're coming out of in verses 9 through 11. And James has been exhorting us unto the appropriate attitude to have uh, toward trials and tribulations. Now, in this section of scripture that's before us today, uh, he kind of segues, you know, he makes this transition, or, or maybe he's just broadening his scope a little bit uh, to include not only trials and tribulations, but also temptations. Uh, he's he's going to highlight three things for us if you're one who takes notes or, uh, you know, marks your margin or whatever, uh, that are within the context of temptation, and that is, number one, the source of temptation, Uh, number two, the steps in temptation, and then finally, number three, the solution 
for temptation. So the source of, the steps in, and the solution for temptation. Let's turn our attention to verse 12, where we read, blessed, or blessed, if you want to say that way, is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Now, when you see see this word or this phrase, blessed is the, or blessed are the, they kind of begins to ring a a bit of a, a reminder in our minds. And probably the most popular place in which we find beatitudes in the Bible is in the fifth chapter of uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Now, that's where we find the, what we refer to as the, the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when he, you remember seeing, Jody, can you kind of address these lights a little bit if you can? If they start going up and down right now, it's okay. We're tr- and listen, we've got a solution, God willing, on the way, right? But the guy that was going to help with it got sick last week, uh, so just rest easy. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, Jesus, seeing the multitudes, went up on the mountain, and uh, when he was seated, he began to teach the multitudes, saying, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And he went on and on and kind of shared with them ways in which happiness or blessedness would find them. You know, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And you're familiar with the passage. You know, there's just a blessing, he would say, in recognizing the absolute impoverished state of our spirit apart from God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, there's nothing we can do to somehow make our own way uh, to heaven, but we have to rely completely and totally upon the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And there's a real blessing in coming to realize that it's not about what I do, uh, but rather it's about what Jesus has done for me. And he says there's a blessing in being broken and mourning over our sin, uh, being humbled before the Lord and receiving the comfort of forgiveness from the Lord and reconciliation with the Lord. You know, blessed are those who, who mourn. And guys, though those are all, as you go through Matthew chapter 5 and you read through and familiarize yourself with the Beatitudes, that is, attitudes that should be in our lives, uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, passage. And there are wonderful ways in which we can be blessed. But listen, Jesus didn't in any way allude to the fact that those were the only ways that we could be or would be blessed. And with even just a little bit of research, you discover these little succinct kind of phrases or statements, pathways to blessing, if you will, found in multiple places throughout your Bible. Uh, now, if you want to write it down, you can. I'm just going to turn there real quick and read it to you because it's, it's a, a few verses rather than just one. But one we find right in the very first chapter of the book of Psalms. It's Psalm chapter 1, and it's the first three verses where we read, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law or the word of the Lord. And in his law, or in his word, he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree. So, you know, you have Jesus saying, blessed are the 
poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, right? Or blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Well, blessed is, you know, uh, the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, so on and so forth, for he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper." In the book of Proverbs chapter 3, we read happy or blessed, blessed is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. Uh, In the 13th chapter, in the 17th verse of the gospel of John, Jesus spoke of the blessing in serving one another. There he was giving an example and he said, blessed are you, right, if you do these things. Uh, In chapter 20, he, in speaking to Thomas, said of John's gospel, he said, blessed are those whom having not seen me, believe, right? And there are others, but you get the idea. Well, here, uh, James shines a little light on yet another. He said, blessed is the man who endures temptation. Now, this is why I say that James is beginning to transition or broaden his scope you know, into the idea of temptations as opposed to tribulations at this point. Because the word translated temptations here uh, in verse 12 and then uh, translated trials, some of you have diverse temptations back in verse 2, but it's, they're the same word. It's the same exact word. So James is either finishing up his thought from the previous little section of Scripture, or he's beginning to lean into the struggle of temptations distinguished and differentiated from tribulation. And the reason that we can say that with certainty is the next few verses will make that clear. Guys, it's the context that clarifies for us the meaning behind the word. Because it can speak of a a difficult, trying time of tribulation and affliction, or solicitation to sin, temptation, right? So tribulation or temptation, the context is what's going to clarify what he's speaking of. And honestly, family, the truth is that it's not uncommon for Satan to take the trial that God is using to strengthen and grow you and try to use it as an occasion to stumble you or solicit you uh, to sin, to tempt you. Guys, think no farther than Job, right? Probably the premier example. You know, God was proving this tremendous work in Job's life through his trials, but the whole time, Satan was using this occasion to tempt Job into cursing God and giving up. And so don't be deceived. Satan loves to just kind of glom on. He loves to just kind of like a leech. You know, he likes to attach himself uh, to the trial that God is using and seize the opportunity to tempt you to sin in the midst of it. Does that make sense? So sometimes the trial and the temptation, their lines can blur because, well, God's proving out one thing in your life and the enemy will seek to seize the opportunity uh, for another agenda altogether. You know, so that suddenly you lose your job um, or, you know, some relational or financial crisis is thrust upon you and Satan comes along, right? I mean, and, and he's just like, look, what's the point? 
you may as well just drown your miserable existence at the bottom of a bottle, you know. And he's taking advantage of the trial so as to introduce an element of temptation. You see how that works? And so James says, blessed is the man who endures temptation, who says no to the temptation, who denies himself, who crucifies his flesh or her flesh, refuses to feed the flesh so as to stay faithful to God, you see. Now, perhaps this would be a good time to note that there's no blessing. Guys, sometimes it's, it's, uh, we've got to pay attention to the words we're reading, right? There's no blessing offered to the one who entertains temptation. And say, blessed is the one who entertains temptation. It doesn't say that. Sometimes you and me, or if you're anything like me, which I trust you are, being, you know, humanity here, we like to... Well, you know, as the saying goes, skate on thin ice. We like to uh, live on the edge or kind of seek to sidle up to sin just as close as we can without actually engaging, you know. No, no blessedness in foolishness, you see. Uh, now, we have phrases that speak to that mentality, don't we? We say things like, if you play with fire... You're going to get burned. Or, or something to the extent of, uh, you know, if you mess with the bull, you get the horns. Right? And so uh, let's not look to entertain temptation. Ultimately, it's our desire to escape temptation altogether. Let's not forget this precious promise. No temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. Now, a lot of times we feel like we're the only one, right? You don't understand. No one else has ever gone through what I'm going through. At least, you know, there might be nuances that are unique to you, but the general temptation presented to you, my friend, is very common, okay? But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of, there's our word, escape, that you may be able to, to bear it. We should never entertain temptation. It's our desire to escape temptation. But until that time comes, till that door opens up, we're to endure, bear up under temptation. That is, we're to stay true to God in spite of temptation. Are you following me? The end of that course is blessing. There is a reward attached to the end of faithful endurance. For when, James says right here in verse 12, for when he has uh, uh, been approved, that is found to be true to God, that is revealing genuine faith toward God. Remember we talked about this last week. Trials don't uh, create faith, or, uh, but they will reveal faith, right? And, and what you're made of kind of a thing. So they will reveal genuine faith toward God. You know, uh, trials, temptations, they have this way of, of displaying how genuine our, our faith really is. Uh, but it says here that when he has been approved or, or been shown to have this uh, genuine faith toward God, he will receive the crown of life 
which the Lord has promised to those who, do you see what that word is there? Those who love him. Well, now that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, think that through. We might expect it to say that the promise but which, by the way, we love the fact that God promised this, right? I mean, we love the promise. God is not a man that he should lie. If he says it, he will do it. Uh, if he uh, speaks it, he will make it good. But we might expect it to say that the promise is for those who trust him. Or the promise is for those who obey him, right? But he doesn't say that. He says that the Lord, James tells us that God has promised, the Lord has promised this, well, the reward is this crown of life for all who endure temptation because they love God. They love Him. Meaning that because they love the Lord, they will stay true to the word and the ways of the Lord. Do you see the connection? Love for God is the appropriate motivation for obedience to God. Love for God is the appropriate motive for obedience to God. Now we know lots of people in the Bible who obeyed God. We call them Pharisees, right? They obeyed the words, but the motive was a little different, wasn't it? They were religious. There wasn't a relationship. Do you see what I'm saying? Love for God. Obedience through love is the nature of a right relationship with God. Does that make sense? Obedience through love is the nature of a right relationship with God. In 1 John chapter 5, we read it this way. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Oh, that's a, that's a good thing to have tucked away in your heart, isn't it? And everyone who loves him who begot also loves him who is begotten of him, meaning you're going to love one another. As a, if, if, you're, uh, um, if you say you belong to God, you're going to love the family of God. You're going you're to love the children of God. Uh, you know, some people are like, well, I love God. It's the church that gets on my nerves. Well, the church belongs to God. We're family, you see. Um, and he says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God or love for God that we keep his commandments. Now in John chapter 14, Jesus said it plainly. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Do what I say. Honor my word. Love for God necessarily leads to and will reveal itself in obedience to God. Are you with me? Now, some resist temptation out of the fear of man. You know, the thief suddenly becomes honest when he sees a policeman. Um, but the appropriate, honorable, eternally rewarded motive for resisting temptation is love for God. You remember when Joseph, there he was being solicited to sin on the daily by Potiphar's wife. She wanted him to sleep with her. And uh, he said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? 
You see, it wasn't the fear of man that was keeping him pure. It was his love for God. And guys, it's not that you're never going to to slip or to stumble, but I hope this is becoming practical for you. What is it that's going to aid you in your time of need? You're going to have to love God more than, than, than sin. Okay? Um, so it's not that you're never going to slip, you're, you're never going to stumble, or you're never going to sin. But the thing is, guys, is we've got to learn to endure. That's our word. We've got to stay in the race. Falling down in a race does not disqualify you. Staying down, however, does. Uh, John said, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what do you do when you slip or when you stumble, when you fall? You repent that's what the word confess. The word confession and repentance are really like hand and glove. That you could use them. They're semantics, basically, biblically, because to confess your sin is to repent of your sin. Does that make sense? In other words, you're saying, God, I agree with you. You're not just saying, I did it. Um, you're saying, God, I agree with you about the nature of my sin, the consequences of my sin. Uh, the, you know, I see the sin for what it is. I'm turning from my sin. This is confession, repentance. And, and, and you get back up and you get back in the race. Now, if you want to write it down, it's Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16. A righteous man may fall seven times. He's going to get back up, right? And there's a reward that awaits you. Do you see what it is? It's the crown of life. Now, guys, this isn't speaking of, uh, of an ornament you know, that goes on your head uh, or maybe something that you hang on the wall. Though that'd be cool. I'm open to that. that that's part of it. That'd be awesome. Um, but think of it like this. The one who endures temptation will be crowned with life. Does that make sense? Life itself is the crown. Now, everlasting life is the reward of all who love Jesus Christ. But somehow, and this is where you start splitting Bible hairs a little bit, somehow and in some way, this crown of life, it seems to add a depth or a dimension of life that goes beyond. Are you with me? In other words, uh, the thief. Remember that guy, with Jesus, there he was upon the cross, and there were two thieves, and one turned to him, one believed in him. Well, now, will he receive the fullness of everlasting life? Absolutely he will. But will it be fullness to the same depth or degree as, say, the Apostle Paul who served the Lord, suffered for the Lord, and endured? And you know, all, Listen, the Bible is clear that rewards will make a difference. Jesus emphasized this over and over again. Yeah, no one's going to feel let down in heaven. Okay, let's get that part clear. You know, Heaven will be fullness of joy for all who are there. But the way that the man or the woman who believed in Jesus but never really served him, uh, didn't ever really suffer or endure much temptation uh, out of love for him, 
Listen, they are not going to be rewarded in the same way as those who have. Does that make sense? And those rewards mean something. Uh, They make a difference. Or what would the point be? The author of Hebrews put it this way. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love which you have shown toward his name. You know what that means? That means God will not be a debtor to you or to me. He will make sure that every ounce of service you've rendered, every bit of temptation you've endured, every affliction that you have or persecution that you have suffered for his name's sake will be duly, justly, and abundantly rewarded. Write it down, look it up later. It's Romans chapter 8 and verse 18. Now, sometimes people get confused. They encounter a trial. You know, along comes temptation. And they they find themselves, I mean, if we're to be honest, they they find themselves complaining against God, uh, you know, questioning the love of God. And they blame God. Uh, for the fact that they're tempted or what have you. And so James understood that natural kind of chain of rationale that we as fallen humanity can have. So he addresses it here. Look at verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted uh, that I am tempted. Sorry, I got Siri going on my phone. She's going to start talking to me. Let no one say uh, that I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted, underline it, when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. And then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved Brethren, do not be deceived. God is not the one who is tempting you. God is only good. God is only holy. Uh, He is repulsed by sin. He's never going to lead you toward sin. He himself can't be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. In other words, this, this idea of tempting someone to sin goes against God's very nature. Are you following me? But it's common for human beings, of which we all are, to pass the buck. You know what I'm saying? We don't like to take responsibility for our own faults and our own fumbles. I mean, we like to blame God for that. Even, listen, you go all the way back to the original sin, right? What did Adam say? He said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. In other words, so he starts, like he's he's arguing from lesser to greater. He's going, well, she gave me of the tree, so it's her fault. But you, God, gave her to me, so ultimately, essentially, it's your fault, My sin, my decision, is your fault. God says, hey, wait a minute, let's roll that back. You know, family, let's be perfectly clear on this point. 
God does not, will not, in fact, I would go as far as to say, cannot tempt a person to sin. We read in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 5, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, notice, that God is light, that's a big part of this, and number two, in him is no darkness at all. Do you understand what that means? That means that there's no, let's just say, dark side to God. There's no mildly, now I know there is in you, and there is in me. But with God, and I'm not saying necessarily like this is what you want, but I'm saying we talk about this mildly dark side, you know, uh, some twisted desire. There's no twisted desire within God, no secret or, or subtle something within him that just wants to bait a trap and see if you fall for it. Okay, that's a big, it's a big uh, principle and point that we need to really understand. In John's gospel, Jesus made an interesting statement. He said, the ruler of this world is coming and he has nothing in me. Look at that. The ruler of this world, that is Satan, is coming and he has nothing in me. What that means is that there is nothing in Christ, there was nothing in him uh, for Satan to lay hold of. Does that make sense? There's no evil, no sin nature in him. Now, that's not true for you. And it's not true for me. Satan finds plenty to work with in us because we have a sin nature. But God does not. Jesus walking this earth did not. So he can't be tempted, God can't be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. There are three things, again, note takers, margin etchers, whatever, that can be responsible for temptation. Number one, you would probably know, we, what do we say, who made me do it? You know, the devil, right? Now when we say the devil, that's kind of Christian shorthand, isn't it? Because it's probably not Satan himself, though I, I would say that it's, not, it's, it's possible, but even his demonic hordes, his minions, we just say the devil, right? Uh, number two, the world. Yes, all that is in the world, the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. And then thirdly, finally, the kind of primarily, me. Okay? Three things that are responsible for temptation. The devil, the world, or myself. Now listen, the first two can be the conduit so to speak, the devil or the world through which my sin nature is enticed, but ultimately, and this is what James does, he just boils it down to the brass tacks, ultimately it comes down to number three, and that is me. And that's what he points out here in verse 14. Each one is tempted when he is, notice the words, drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Again, uh, the world and the devil may provide the enticement or the incentive is what that means, but it's our own desire that draws us away. But man, we like to pass the buck, don't we? It's always someone else's fault. You know, the devil made me do it. Well, if you hadn't, I wouldn't. 
And on and on it goes. I like what J. Vernon McGee said about this. He said, how many of you know who J. Vernon McGee, yeah, you kind of have that, now friends, you have that voice, that southern draw, you ever hear him on the radio back in the day? My friend, you know, he said, you could solve a great deal of your problems for which you're blaming someone else if you would say to the living Lord Jesus who is right now at God's right hand, I'm a sinner, I'm guilty. You know, don't blame anyone else. Take responsibility for the decision you made to sin. Now, when James speaks of being drawn away and enticed, I want you to think of like a hunting or a fishing metaphor. Any hunters here? Man, just one? Two? Okay, uh, yeah, come on, you didn't raise your hand. Kindle, of all people. Uh, uh, I guess I'll out you. He owns a hunting business. Um, anyway, any fishermen here? A few more, okay. Well, anyway, this word of being drawn away and, and enticed, uh, it, 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 it speaks of laying a trap or baiting a hook so as to lure or draw out the prey. It's the lure. It's a, you know, a fish isn't going to knowingly bite a hook but man, he's down for an enticing, readily available worm or something. You know? <laughs> That's a good one. My <laughs> sister laughed. Uh, but guys, it's the bait that hides the consequences of the sin. Are you following me? In other words, think of it like this. Would David have sinned with Bathsheba had he known it meant the death of a baby the murder of his friend, the raping of his daughter, the disruption and division within his family and his kingdom for the rest of his life. The bait speaks to what you can have or what you can do now. It's all about the now. It doesn't speak to the destruction that it brings later. Okay? Now, Verse 15 makes a distinction for us, and it's important. And, and guys, we're, we're not a whole long ways from finish, so stay with me. A few minutes. Verse 15 makes a distinction that's important. Temptation entices us. Our desires draw us away. But I want you to notice, then, when desire has conceived... It gives birth to sin. What does that mean? It means that temptation itself is not sin. Okay? But when I gratify the temptation, when I indulge the desire, be it physically or inwardly, in my heart, in my mind, that's when the sin occurs. Um... It's probably not a perfect illustration, but I've, I've read it. I've, I've heard it before. It, you know, uh, guys, uh, gals, I suppose, if you see a good-looking guy or guys, you see a good-looking girl, they say, you know, the first glance is free. You know, in other words, you couldn't help it. You just saw something. You just saw this beautiful woman or what. But the second one, that's when it starts costing you. You see what I mean? Now you've moved from something that you were not responsible for, for to something you are purposely, remember the word, entertaining. No blessing in the entertaining. Okay? 
And so when the desire has conceived, that is the desire has been indulged, it, it gives birth to sin. And when sin grows up, it has a child of its own, death. The ultimate result of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. James says, don't be deceived. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, family, brothers, sisters, there's never an exception to the progression. Sin will kill. Sin kills relationships. Sin will ruin your health, your happiness. Sin brings death, and death is separation. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, nor his ear heavy that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. And this is what takes us back to 1 John right, 1, 9. This is why confession and repentance is so important in the life of the believer. Believer, because if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us, to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Sin makes for separation. Repentance makes for restoration or reconciliation. Does that make sense? Okay. And let's remember, Satan came to kill, to steal, and to destroy the things that he offers you or sets before you, the way he seeks to entice you or lure you will not render something good to you. Guys, we gotta, we gotta remember uh, the, the secret to overcoming temptation. Number one, I'm gonna mention three things to you. And, and they're not, the first couple, I'm, I'm just kind of throwing these out. Uh, the first couple you may not see here. I'm just giving you some bonus points. Uh, number one, I have to recognize if I'm going to overcome temptation, remember each one is tempted when he is drawn away of his own desires, right? The flesh is desire. So I have to recognize, there's a deductive point I suppose there. I have to recognize the Romans chapter 7 sort of principle or, or you know the, the, the play that Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 and that is that in me that is in my flesh Nothing good dwells, okay? Satan will seek to appeal to my flesh and nothing good will come from feeding my flesh. Uh, number two, I am to walk in the Spirit, okay? Uh, that is, set my mind on the things of the Spirit. That's what Paul says again in Romans. He says, for the one who sets his mind on the things of the Spirit you know, won't fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Uh, so I'm to feed my inner man. How do I do that? Through the Word of God, through prayer, through worship, and fellowship. Cross-pollinating spiritually with like-minded brothers and sisters. The third one is, is mentioned back in verse 12, and I already drew your attention to it. Our passion and love for God must be greater than our passion or desire for sin. Obedience through love. And so, uh, God doesn't tempt you toward evil. There is no evil or dark side in him. There's only good. And that, as we start making our way, you know, uh, toward the end of our section here, 
James says, is what he does for you and gives to you. Notice with me, we read our last couple of verses here. He says, every good and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights uh, with whom there is no variation, here it is again, or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought forth, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Think of it like this. Jesus died because of our sin. Uh, God gave his only begotten son to cleanse us of sin. Now then, does it stand to reason that God would then tempt you to sin? Do you see the kind of the counterintuitive rationale if you just think it through for just a minute? No, God gives good things to you. Remember this, you guys. Satan will never give you anything, okay? Because you will always wind up paying for it in the end, all right? Now again, in me, that is in my flesh, no good thing dwells. So if it's good, you know, I can't take credit for the good things in my life. They're gifts from God. Listen, every breath you take is a gift from God, Every beat of your heart is a gift from God. The ability to work, to create, to teach, the meals you eat, the water you drink, whatever, the sunshine to enjoy, the green grass, every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, that is the creator of the sun and the stars and all. Listen, do you remember the first words that were recorded of God in Scripture? Let there be light. He's the creator, the father of lights. God is light. Christ in you, the light of the world, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In other words, you and me, we vary, don't we? I mean, come on, somebody. Good days and bad. Uh, you know, we can be moody. I, 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 I remind my wife of that all the time. She starts getting a little, you know, and I'm like, listen, um, the, the truth is it's the opposite. It's the opposite of that. She's like, you're grouchy today. You know? I, I didn't realize I wasn't trying to be grouchy. I guess I just have a snap to my voice. You know, I'm one of those guys. But, um, but here's my point. God's not like that. Doesn't, God doesn't have a bad day. He, he's never like generous one day and like kind of stingy the next or grouchy the next, you know. Um, he's faithful and true. The same yesterday, today, and forever. So on Christ the solid rock I stand, you see. All other ground is sinking sand. He's true. He's faithful. Karen, you can come on up, yeah. We read, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. In other words, you've been born again, as we read in the Gospel of John, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. It's God's will that you should be saved. Come on, somebody say amen to that. In fact, God's not willing that any should perish but that all should come to repentance. And it's the Spirit of God who uses the Word of God 
to bring forth the miracle of the new birth. Peter put it this way, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Sin brings forth death. The will of God, through the word of God, brings forth everlasting life. Do you see the contrast? God's not going to tempt you to sin. Uh, Sin brings death. God's word, God's will, God's spirit brings life. That we might be kind of a first fruits of his creatures. Listen, this is kind of a practical point for their generation. I believe James was speaking to the very first generation to be saved. Uh, First fruits... They're always anticipatory, aren't they? That's why when we give, like when we give our tithes, we, we say it's to be the first fruit. It's the very, because first fruits, in other words, I don't, I don't uh, pay all my bills and all my things, and then if I have anything left over, well, I'll, I'll give out of that something to God. Because that's not faith. That's not saying, God, I trust you're going to provide for me. Lord, I, I trust that you're going to take care of me. So the first fruits is, is, a, is a, an offering of faith. It's anticipatory of a great harvest that there's going to be provision to follow, you see. And so here you are today. James talking about this first fruits in his generation of salvation, the, 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 the first fruits of the gospel. And here you are today, a testimony to God's faithfulness to bring forth the harvest. And so let's pray and and ask God to strengthen us that we might walk in the Spirit, not fulfill the lusts of the flesh, that He would be glorified in our lives. Father, I pray that you forgive us when we... uh, try to pass the buck and make excuses for the sin that we willingly choose to entertain. I pray, God, you help us to recognize temptation for what it is and to love you more than we desire other things, that you would be the greatest love of our lives. I pray, God, you teach us to walk in the Spirit And even as you've been faithful to grant new life in us, we pray, God, that it be only a first fruit, so to speak. We're asking for a great harvest to follow. God, I I would pray that we would see many to come to know you and grow in you this year. Lord, that we would just be sort of a first fruits of what you're doing here. In Jesus' name, amen.